Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of our show. We've had a little bit of a hiatus. I've been pretty busy since the AAO meeting in May in Los Angeles, which I attended, and uh, it was a pleasure to meet uh, some of you there and uh, to get to connect with some old friends and to listen to some fantastic presentations. It was kind of a whirlwind trip. I was in and out in 48 hours, but uh, had a great time nonetheless. And if your house is like mine, this time of year is just crazy. Uh, End of the school year, uh, my kids have a lot of stuff going on. The practice is a little bit slower here now that we're into the early part of June where uh, patients have field days and end of school parties, but life just seems very hectic. Uh, And of course, we're headed into the summer. So this is probably going to be our last episode for the spring, and then I think we'll be off for the summer, and then hopefully back in the fall uh, with some more interviews. I definitely have been in touch with some other people, and there's still more of you out there that I need to speak with uh, to get on the show and to be able to share your knowledge and experience with our listeners. Thanks to all of you who tune in and who send this show to your friends and uh, who send me kind messages. I really appreciate it. And uh, although I've been not able to get as many of these out in recent months, uh, I really appreciate all the support that you guys have shown to me. Today on the podcast, we have Jackie Shoemaker. Jackie and I are going to have a conversation about the financial systems that we all have in our orthodontic practices. And we're going to talk about things like dealing with uh, delinquent accounts, how we set up contracts, insurance, and all of these issues that sometimes get a little bit put on the back burner until they become a bigger issue and all of a sudden demand our attention. So we'll have a quick word from the sponsor of today's episode and then get into our interview. Thanks to the sponsor of today's episode, Smart Practice. Are your patients struggling to remove clear braces, aligners, and retainers? The Smart Remover from Smart Practice can help you make it easier for patients to stay compliant with their treatments while keeping your practice information top of mind every day. The Smart Remover gives you an efficient way to promote your practice and end patients' struggle with removing their clear braces, aligners, and retainers, all in one product. The Smart Remover comes with free personalization, so you can display your contact information, and it fits in most retainer cases. To save 20% on your order, just call 1-800-522-0800 or visit smartpractice.com slash ortho and use the code ELEVATE. Jackie Shoemaker utilizes more than 35 years of experience in the orthodontic industry to help orthodontists develop more satisfying and profitable practices by increasing income and improving staff financial skills. Her competitive advantage is her unique skill set obtained through her bachelor's degree in accounting, foundation in corporate accounting, experience working in an orthodontic practice, and knowledge of orthodontic software. Jackie developed the payment compliance company AccountTrack Incorporated, where for the past 20 years, she and her team encounter the firsthand effects of patient delinquency, financial arrangements, practice policies, and treatment-related concerns while collecting patient accounts for orthodontic practices on a daily basis. Her expertise and services especially enhance the areas of cash flow maximization, patient and insurance delinquency reduction, financial arranging, patient relations, and internal financial controls. Jackie, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. Thank you, Lance. I'm excited to be here. Great, great. We're, we're excited to have you here on the show. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become involved with orthodontists? Well, that's an interesting story. With a degree in accounting, I moved to Florida and was looking for a job in Vero Beach, Florida. 
And at the time, really, the only industry here was the citrus industry. And so I had a job offer either in the citrus industry or in an orthodontic practice. My dad, whose background is in finance, said, take the job in the orthodontic office, which I thought was unusual. And I said, why? And he said, because there are not citrus industries all over the country, your husband's in baseball, you're going to move around a lot, go into the orthodontic practice. <laughs> so that's what I did. Went into the orthodontic office, was only there a couple years, and had actually met a consultant in this arena who was doing some in orthodontics, not a lot. I started working with him. And after working with him for about six or seven years, I decided to go out on my own and I've been doing it on my own ever since. That's great. And it, and it sounds like you've never left uh, Vero Beach, Florida. I've never left Vero Beach, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you could have been in the citrus industry after all. Yeah. yeah, there's a little more industry in Vero Beach right now than there was at that time, um, because that was 30, 37 years ago. But um, I just haven't left at orthodontics because I've really enjoyed the work. And it's in my arena accounting. And it's just been a great job. Great. So uh, I'm excited to have you on the show today. And uh, we're going to talk about a situation or a problem, I guess, that a lot of orthodontists face in their practices. And, and I'm kind of envisioning in my mind when, when I thought about this episode, an orthodontist who maybe goes out, they graduate and they start a practice and they get a space and they build it out and they buy some brackets and wire and glue and they get some patients coming in the door and things seem to be going well. And then they seem to reach a certain point where if they're not careful, they all of a sudden their financial system starts to get a little bit out of control. And they're, they're kind of looking around like, I didn't even realize I had to do some of this stuff. And, and you know, how do I kind of get this all back in order? Um, certainly, I've, I've talked with friends and, and other practices that, that they're kind of in this sort of a, a tricky problem. And I'm sure this is kind of the phone call that, that you get from time to time. So start us off a little bit by talking about, you know, where, where does someone begin? If, if they feel like they're a little bit out of control, uh, they feel like they've got money that's, that's past due in, in, in patient or maybe insurance accounts, you know, how does someone start to kind of get a handle on these uh, financial problems in their practice? Well, you know, it's actually interesting because if there happens to be a cash flow problem in your area or in your practice, you know, one of the things that you want to do is take a look at which component is causing the problem. So oftentimes if a doctor gets into a position where his collections are suffering, he tends to think the issue is going to be with patient delinquency or insurance delinquency and maybe has not realized what financial arranging may have caused in that cash flow deficit. So in other words, you have to look at financial arranging if it's truly a cash flow problem. If it's, you know, a problem, delinquency, you know, in general, you're going to take a look at the number of delinquent accounts that you have in a practice. So the first thing they would want to look at is how many delinquent accounts do I have, patient accounts that are delinquent, or how many insurance accounts do I have that are delinquent? And in general, you want less than 5% of the number of accounts that you have with a balance to be delinquent, less than 5%. So if you're in a practice, and let's say you have 50 delinquent accounts, you can pretty much assume 50 delinquent accounts times $100 means I might be short $5,000 in any given month. That may not always be the amount of cash flow that you're looking for. You're, you may be looking for more than that. But, you know, patient delinquency, the first thing that you have to do is take a look at the number of delinquent accounts. There are a number of consultants that will say, look at the dollar amount that's delinquent. But I can show you um, numerous examples of delinquency where 
The dollars delinquent is less than 3%. That would be the dollars delinquent over 60 days past due. Um, in a number of cases, it's less than the 3%, but when you look at the number of accounts that are delinquent, you find that 25% of their accounts are delinquent, which means that one out of every four patients that comes into your practice is out of relationship with the practice. So you need to measure delinquency, both in terms of the dollars delinquent, but more important for me is the number of accounts that are delinquent. Right, because that really represents the amount of work that's going to be required to get things back on track, right? I mean, I'd rather have a couple of people owe me larger amounts than tons of people that I have to contact with, you know, smaller amounts. That's correct. That's correct. So the number of accounts will tell me how much work does my staff have to put in to get that delinquency reduced to less than 5%. When you, once you've identified the patient delinquency and you know how many accounts have to be worked, uh, my suggestion on working those accounts is always to work the accounts that are least delinquent first. So I want to work the ones that are 30 days, not yet 60, not yet 90, then the ones that are 60, not yet 90, and then I'll work the 90. If I sit in the over 90-day column and try to work those accounts, which are more difficult to work require more time, what will happen is the ones that are 30, not yet 60, will move over into the 90-day column. So I'm kind of trying to head it off at the pass in terms of the workload. Yeah, yeah, to prevent that things from getting any worse. I I like that strategy. So you mentioned, you know, looking at these reports of percentage of accounts or number of accounts that are that are overdue and number or percentage of dollars that are overdue. What other reports should people kind of be running when they're trying to kind of get a sense for the financial health of their practice? Uh, Well, that would be just the patient delinquency side, which, you know, I say is one of the five components of cash flow. There's five cash flow components. Patient delinquency is one. Insurance delinquency is another. It's very similar to patient delinquency, although how you work those accounts kind of flips. So I want to work the accounts that are most delinquent first on insurance delinquency and then work down to the ones that are least delinquent. The goal for insurance delinquency is 3 to 5% in terms of number of accounts. I would truthfully never look at the dollar amount that's delinquent on the insurance ledgers because there's just too much guesswork in how should I have this charge out? How should I have it roll out? What frequency? I mean, I see a lot of problems in insurance delinquency because ledgers are not set up correctly and they're not maintained. So I would never look at dollars delinquent on the insurance ledgers, but always look at number of accounts past due. Okay. So that, that would be a second component, insurance delinquency. And that would be a separate report on your computer system. You never mix patient delinquency with insurance delinquency. They are separate entities. Patient delinquency takes a long time to clean up. It's very slow to be cleaned up, but your workload goes away. Insurance delinquency can be cleaned up very quickly. However, the workload never goes away. (laughs) So, you know, the doctors that are out there and say, well, my insurance delinquency is less than 3%. Let's give her something else to do. She may not necessarily have time to do something else. She needs to maintain that 3% delinquency rate and the workload just is never reduced on insurance delinquency. Right. That makes sense. That that would be the first two areas that I would take a look at, you know, and again, just be cautious because there's only X amount of dollars that can be collected. So, you know, and I I gave you a quick scenario of how to calculate how much of it, how much you're missing in your income. Right. The other things then that you take a look at is what's happening with adjustments in the practice. 
what's happening with financial arrangements, adjustments. You can get, you know, a report off of your computer to see what's happening with adjustments. Financial arranging is a tricky area because there really is not a computer system that analyzes that the way you, you should analyze it in order to maximize cash flow, but at the same time, maximize case acceptance. And then the fifth area would be insurance um, filing strategies. And, and that's not, that would not be re- a report that you could pull off of your computer. That would be something you'd have to analyze individually and see what's go- what the strategy is in that practice and kind of go from there. Right. When, when you say adjustments, what, what you're referring to, discounts that maybe the doctor is giving or what falls under adjustments and, and, and what's important to think about with that? Um, adjustments, typically, you know, you'd like your adjustments to be, I, I'm going to say with, with what I see in the industry lately, your adjustments typically are going to be somewhere between 7 to 10% of your production. And, you know, it's important to me not to look at net production, but to look at gross production, understand that adjustments are a component that you may have control over. So if you know how much you're adjusting off the books, you can adjust that, you know, on a monthly basis so that you may be able to increase profitability. And I'm going to give you a couple examples. Um, you asked me what, what adjustments am I looking at? In a, in a broad sense, I'm looking at discounts. I'm looking at write-offs. You know, discounts and write-offs may be broken down into insurance write-offs or insurance discounts. The discounts can be many things. You know, I just spoke with a practice the other day who said to me, you know, Jackie, you always say you should analyze your adjustments, and we don't understand what you mean. What's wrong with our adjustments? Well, looking at their adjustments, paid and full discounts were one of their higher adjustment categories. Um, sibling discounts were one of their higher adjustment categories. Chances are I'm not going to be able to change that too much. Insurance discounts were okay. That we can possibly change depending upon how we file the insurance. Um, but finally, what happened in their office is you had a lot of retainers that were being replaced and they were discounting them. So that was an area to me, once we picked it apart, where you might be able to make a difference of anywhere from, you know, possibly two to $4,000 a month in this particular practice. And if we, if we realize that that category is too high, we cut it down. What I can then do is increase my profit. Because if I'm not adjusting it off, somebody's going to pay for those retainers instead of giving them for free, and I'm going to increase my profitability in the practice. Right. So the important thing then would be to make sure that we are entering all of our contracts and all of our charges as full fee, and then hopefully reflecting those uh, discounts so that we can track that. I mean, I know there's some people that just put in these discounted amounts, and then then you've got no usable data. Right. Always. Because, you know... As much as I hate to say it, from time to time, there are doctors where I have to say, your adjustment category is higher than 10%. Now, realize if you're adjusting 10% off the books, that means for every 10 days you're working, one of those days is free. <laughs> I wouldn't sign up for that. <laughs> yeah. You know, so if I did sign up for it inadvertently and I didn't realize that, you know, I need to be able to pick it apart to say, okay, how can I get myself out of this? Because for every 10 days I, do, I work, I don't want one of those to be for free. Right. So yes, you need to analyze it and see, you know, what adjustments can be made. Okay. We'll stick with your five strategies here. Number four was the contract terms and the way that we set up new contracts. I'm going to call that financial arranging. So in terms of the contracts, you know, the one thing I will say in things that I see, you know, it's like 
in some ways, I'd love to do a podcast on here's the five worst things I've seen in the last year. <laughs> and, you know, probably part of that list would be splitting contracts, you know, the split contracts in divorce cases. Um, we have to realize that we can't enforce somebody's divorce decree. That's not a court system that's available to us. So I would prefer not to see contracts split. What that means is I need a contract signed by one party for the entire amount of money. Now, if I, out of the courtesy of my heart, want to then talk with somebody about financing and they want to pick up a portion of that contract, I write a separate contract for that amount of money, but I always have one contract that is for 100% of the fee because that's the person I'm going to go to if the other person reneges. You know, again, if this guy reneges, I can take him, you know, to court and have that contract fulfilled. But what I can't do is I can't go to divorce court or family court and say, he has to pay this according to his divorce degree. So that would be, that's a big thing that I've seen more and more lately, which kind of surprises me um, because we should be getting away from that. So in terms of financial arranging, what's happened in the industry? I mean, it used to be, and there's actually a presentation I do where I talk about, you know, the glory days when we could ask for 33% down and get it. <laughs> we can't do that anymore. Yep. I will say that I would like to see an average down payment. Now that's an average of 13 to 15% of the gross fee. So um, if I'm getting 13 to 15% of the gross fee on average, I'm doing pretty good with financial arranging from a cash flow standpoint. What I see in the industry is that oftentimes, if we're analyzing down payments, we're mixing together the non-insurance patients, the insurance patients, and the paid in fulls. And I have a fourth category, unusual financial arrangements, which is a lot of the flex plan stuff. So my clients have things separated. Their insurance contracts get X amount down. Their non-insurance contracts get X amount down. Paid in fulls, I'd still like to see at least 20% of the people pay in full. If they're not paying in full, we have to figure out what can be done to try to get up to 20% of the patients to pay in full. And why do, why do you have that as a target? It helps maximize cash flow. And I'll give you another example. A client of mine called me, this happened to be a female orthodontist, and she said, you know, Jackie, my staff is not hitting the collection ratio of 92% of production. They're, they're collecting 89% of production. And they'd been doing that for at least three years in a row when I looked at their numbers. And the doctor said, I'm not happy. I want them at 92%. So I started looking at the components in their practice. They had literally no patient delinquency, literally no insurance delinquency. So I couldn't get money from delinquency to get to 92%. But when I looked at their financial arranging, their financial arranging was decent until we got to the paid in fulls and they didn't have 20% of the patients paying in full. And I said, how come? Well, her husband didn't want to offer a 5% discount. And I say the discount can vacillate anywhere from 3% to 10%, but he didn't want to offer 5%. And I said, why not? And she said, I don't know. And I said, let me give it to you straight. You have a couple of choices. You can increase your paid in full discount to 5%, and hit 92% collection ratio, or you can leave it as it is, hit 89% and get off the financial staff because they're doing everything they can do. <laughs> Take your pick. She switched it to 5% down. They've hit 92% every year since then. Right. 
you know, because they have no delinquency. So it's in financial arranging. You know, I have other offices where we tweak financial arranging. You know, if they're only at 10% down, I try to get them to 13% down and then to 15% down. Just for the listeners, those are average numbers, right? I mean, that's not everyone having to put down 15%. Some are putting down five and some are putting down 25 and, and we're getting 15. That's correct. Some are going, you know, with the $500 down and I'm like, I know that seems to be a magic number that everyone wants to talk about in the industry, but why don't you try $600 down? Why don't you try $650? Because in terms of what it's going to do to case acceptance, I have found that there's no change in case acceptance if I get off of $500 and go to some, you know, go to $600 or $750 or something like that. But it all has to be analyzed individually. What's the insurance? You know, what's happening with my insurance cases? What's happening with my non-insurance cases? And length of contract is a big deal. Yeah. Um, you know, in general, if I, for every two months that I extend the contract, my patients are paying me 10 to $15 a month less. Does that make sense? Yep. So if I cut the contract by two, if I cut the contract by two months, I'm increasing their monthly payment by $10. That doesn't seem like a lot. But when you have 300 cases times $10 a month, it starts adding up. So financial arranging is a big deal, and that's actually where we can tweak a lot of things and practices to make sure that their financial arranging is maximized, that case acceptance is maximized, and the end result will be cash flow will be maximized. Right. So I know that there's kind of an alternative approach to some of the things that, that, that you've been mentioning, which is kind of the, the growth at all costs model, or you could call it. Yes. I think there is a case to be made and practices that are successfully doing this that are doing very low down payments, extended financing. Many of them do have low delinquency and they just figure the patient is going to pay me when the patient pays me. I just have to be a little bit patient. And in a couple of years, my, my collections will catch up to my production and I'll have a big booming practice. And I'm, I'm curious what, what your thoughts are on that, because I know there are people that are that are doing that and making it work. There are people that are doing that. Um, in some cases, they're making it work. It just depends on the situation. You know, the one thing I guess I would say with respect to that, first of all, when I look at practices, every practice I look at individually. So to try to put everybody in a certain box, it's just not possible. Right. So even in those practices where they're trying to get growth, you know, there may be some tweaking that can be done with just slightly shortening the contract. But the other thing that you want to consider is what is your profit margin in the practice? And given your profit margin, which probably runs about 35% profit, how many months does it take you to cover your expenses on a given case? You know, in some of those instances, if I'm too flexible with financing, there could become a cash flow problem in the practice. There's a presentation I do that talks about how many months does it take to cover your expenses, you know, when you're going with $500 down and a monthly payment of less than 200 You know, that seems to be a topic that people talk about. I mean, on a $6,000 case fee, 24 months of treatment, I'm actually not covering my expenses till month number 18. So you just have to consider that, you know, what's your personal cash flow like? How much money can you you know, possibly lend the practice if need be because you're being so flexible with financing. And obviously in those cases, you have to keep delinquency at a minimum or you're in trouble. And then you're fit, you, you had one more, which was something about insurance strategies. And, and uh, I was curious what you meant by that. 
it's actually, you know, the insurance filing and follow up in the strategies. And what has happened in the industry, you have to remember when you, when you file a claim form, you actually should be filing for a financial arrangement according to the way your fee is incurred, not the way that we negotiated finances with someone. It needs to be set up according to the way your fee is incurred. So, you know, my recommendation is typically to file 30% down. There are some people who will file 50% down. You know, that gets into what's happening with a particular carrier. How are they going to pay? One and two. Number three, can you explain that your fee is incurred that way? That's not how your fee is incurred. So you shouldn't be charging the insurance company in that manner. And then also the length of the, of the contract, you know, what's happening with the length of the contract that plays a part in the filing strategy. Yeah. Yeah. I've got another question for you and maybe this has to do more with the adjustment side of things, but thinking about insurance, what is your thoughts on, you know, being in network with insurance, re- uh, accepting reduced fees, PPO participation, it seems like you've you've got the, the the gamut of opinions here. There's people that are doing this, and then you've got people trying to drop their PPOs. You know, how should we evaluate these in terms of a cash flow and a profitability standpoint? Well, part of that goes back to what you said about putting contracts on the books. We always have to put it on at the gross fee and adjust it downward, because one of the things we want to do is keep an eye on what percentage of my fee am I giving up because I'm participating in a particular plan. I can tell you a general rule of thumb that when I look at plans that some clients are participating in, if they're adjusting off more than 30% of their fee, 30% or higher, I tell them to take a second look at whether or not they really want to participate in that plan. Because a 30% write-off means there's maybe 5% margin of profit. That's it. That goes back to wanting to work one out of every 10 days for free. You know, that that's not how I operate. I'm a more work smarter, not harder. So I don't have a problem with participating in plans, but the problem comes in is you have to become a student of how you can work around the way a plan is written or what's included in that contract. So you have to look for little loopholes, like do they pay for self-ligating brackets? You know, Invisalign, I would take it out of that contract fee and have a separate line item for Invisalign. You have to look like habit-forming appliances. Those are typically not covered by the carriers. So again, that needs to be a separate line item when you're filing the insurance claim. But you have to become a student of those plans and look for loopholes in what's not included that I'm providing to my patients. When you find those loopholes, you can file your insurance forms differently that will not be included in the contracted fee. However, it will be passed back to the patient. So it's a decision that you have to make on, you know, what am I willing to do? How much of my fee am I willing to give up? And is it possible for me to charge some of that back to the patient and make up what you might think was a lost fee if you were not a student of those contracts and what they cover? Right. Yeah, it's a difficult decision. It seems like, uh, especially in the more urban areas, there's more and more pressure for, you know, orthodontists to go in network. And uh, that that seems like a a one-way street, unfortunately, in the industry. You know, the thing about it is, you know, you'll hear the term upcharging or balanced billing. The key is getting a handle on that, upcharging or balanced billing. And you can work around some of that and become very profitable and still be participating in some of those plans. 
Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about what we do or what some of the strategies are for that kind of uncollectible patient debt. So, I mean, there, there certainly are accounts that go bad or people that call up and they just say, that's it. I can't, I don't have anything left, left to give. Mm-hmm. Uh, what advice do you have for your clients when they're kind of faced with that decision, especially when perhaps the there's still a, a patient, even a child in orthodontic treatment? You know, there's there's actually many different strategies and a lot of it depends on what the doctor is willing to do. First of all, what I would say about uncollectible debt is because of the other company that we have account track where we collect accounts for orthodontic practices, I know how consistently an account has to be worked. We happen to have a program on the internet that tells a representative, these are the accounts that you have to work today. For instance, if you make a phone call today and you leave a message, two or three days later, you have to call that patient again and follow up on, you know, why they haven't called you back, why they haven't made a payment. So, A number of offices think you can do something once every 30 days. It's not going to cut it. You have to do something. You have to touch an account at least somewhere between three to four to five times a month. Collection activity, however, is a marketing tool. You know, we don't do hardcore collections. I don't recommend hardcore collections. I recommend building relationships, developing relationships, renegotiating some things with patients if you need to renegotiate with them. You know, if somebody's just been laid off and you want to renegotiate a contract and not have them pay anything for the next three months, I'm okay with that. But I put an endpoint on that. Same thing with if I want to lower their payment to $50 a month, I'm fine. I'm happy to do that for three months, but there's an endpoint. So in any of those cases, I have to come back to them after that 90 days and say, we got to talk about this again, you know, because I can't do $50 a month on a $4,000 case fee. One thing would be renegotiating the account, working the account consistently. You know, I have, I have different doc, I have some doctors who have worked around uncollectible accounts in different ways. Some of them, you know, obviously if there's an extraction in the case, I've got to close that space before I can make any decisions about what I want to do with that patient in terms of discontinuing treatment or continuing treatment or what do I want to do. I actually just talked to a, a client recently. It's a father-son practice and they were doing I wouldn't say quite a few extractions, but more than I typically see. And those were their delinquent accounts. And I was like, we got, we've got to do something different. And the son, when I talked to him, because I kept harping on, there's another extraction, there's another extraction, there's another extraction that's not paying you. He finally said to me, you know what, Jackie, we definitely have a problem and I have the solution. Instead of sending that extraction slip out to the referral at the start of treatment, we're going to put these kids in treatment for 90 days and then we're going to send the extraction slips out. So then that way we get a handle for whether or not they're going to pay before we do the extractions. That's clever. Yeah. It, it, you know, I think that's going to work for them. That's probably the one problem they have in that practice when it comes to delinquency is what am I going to do with these extraction cases? So, you know, their philosophy is basically close the space, give them a retainer, probably an Essex, tell them you love them and send them on their way. You know, so you just have to decide what you're comfortable with. I have concerns about the liability that you have on patients who are delinquent, still have your appliances in their mouth, and are walking around out there. I agree. That's a huge concern to me. Another practice I worked with recently said, we're going to charge them $600 and take the appliances off. Look, if they could pay $600, they would have paid it by now. Yeah. 
So I just assume you get them in, take the appliances off. If, if you can determine that's what's possible, give them some kind of retainer, send them on their way. Yeah, that's, that's certainly the rule in our practice. I, anyone who I have ever put braces on uh, is always welcome to come in and get them removed at no charge at any time. That's what should be done. You know, it's just, it, it just to hold these people hostage, to tell somebody you can't come in for an appointment until your account's up to date. If they could do that, they would have done it by now. Yeah, and I think people get a little bit confused because we send out these dismissal letters, right, that say, yes. you're dismissed, we'll do it for 30 days on an emergency basis, and after that, we encourage you to find another orthodontist. And, like, we send those letters too, mm-hmm. but when then the patient calls you, like, three or six months later or two years later, you, you can have them come in and Absolutely. sign a release and take their braces off at no charge. <sighs> the thoughts that somehow that's going to incur some additional liability or you don't want to get involved with that patient again. I just think that's so dwarfed by the fact that, again, there's these people out there with your braces on. You got to get them, you got to get them out of, out of the braces. So Absolutely. Yeah. And I actually have some clients that when they send that dismissal letter, they say in the dismissal letter, we'll be happy to remove your appliances at no cost. Please give us a call. I think ours says we're happy to remove it in the next 30 days if you give us a call trying to get them to call. Good idea. But then if they call at any time, we'll still do it. Oh, you've got it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be concerned about your liability for them having those appliances in their mouth. Exactly. And, and to me, that's more of a concern to me than the money. I agree at that point. What do you think about um, collection agencies, small claims court, all of those sorts of tools? Uh, you know, the collection agencies collect about a third of what you give to them. Even the collection agencies don't work accounts consistently. It is the consistency that will get the account. Um, So it's always a trick question as a consultant to ask a staff, are you using a collection agency? Yeah, we are. Are they any good? Yeah, they're really good. And we know as a consultant, that means you're not doing it, sweetheart. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you were doing it, they wouldn't be doing a good job. There are instances, it's funny, where some people are definitely motivated by being sent to a collection agency. So my pearl on that would be, if you're going to use an outside collection agency, see if they report to the credit bureau. If they report to the credit bureau, I'll take that collection agency. If they don't report to the credit bureau, I pass on it and try to find another one. So that's what we do. I know some people say you should never send any patients to collections. We rarely do. We probably send a handful a year. Exactly. The ones we send are for patients with completed treatment that's turned out very well. Yes. That owe us probably more than $1,500, let's say, is, is maybe an approximate number. And we send it to an agency that, like you say, reports to a credit bureau. And then somehow, miraculously, sometimes two years later, they're going to buy a car and, and we'll get a check for $2,000 minus whatever 25% that the collection agency took. Yes. And you bring up a good point because I, I love what you're doing. Um, what I've often see, seen is that a patient does not have the ability to pay. You know they don't have the ability to pay. You should have determined that in your collection activity with them. If they don't have the ability to pay, why would you send them to a collection agency? Yeah, you're right. There's some that's clearly it's, it's never going to happen. And, no. um, and like I said, the other thing is I make sure it's a case that I'm pretty thrilled with. I. You know, if there's anything dicey about the outcome or some question about how the treatment was, you know, executed. Right. You know, just just let it go. Just let it go. Yeah. Which brings up the question when you do write an account off the books, 
what you can send to the collection agency is the fee that you have incurred. So you may not be able to send the entire balance to the collection agency, although if the case is completed, obviously you could. But otherwise, you can only send the portion of the fee that has been incurred. That would be an uncollectible write-off. Anything that was not incurred is discontinued treatment. So you want to separate those two. I'm not a fan of small claims court. You still have to get a judgment against somebody and exercise that judgment. So you're right back at square one. So I'm not a, I'm not a fan of small claims court. I've, I've never tried it. So let me ask you another question here. I know we have some different companies that provide some services to orthodontists in this space. And it sounds like you have a company that uh, helps with following up with, with patient accounts. We've got companies uh, like OrthoBank, which are, I guess, mainly doing processing and maybe some light follow-up. We've got companies like OrthoFi, which seem to be a little bit more involved in terms of you know, working these accounts. How do you know if a company like that is, is a good fit for your practice? Certainly there's an expense involved in, in bringing them in. How do you know if you need a consultant to help you? Like, like you know, different people probably need different solutions. And, and how do you know which one is right for you? Uh, it's a great question. You know, I, I would say I'm going to try to generalize things because I, d- I don't want to get into necessarily individual things with those companies because different ones have different pitfalls. You know, those companies will work a delinquent account until their X number of days past due. After their X number of days past due, it's back in your lap, which means if you don't have some kind of system set up for collecting those accounts, you're back at square one with those accounts. So, so I have a little bit of a problem with that. OrthoBank, um, OrthoBank's a third-party processor you know, that's pretty cut and dry. They have a great reputation with how they handle patients. And, and yet those are still back in your lap at a certain number of days past due. With OrthoFi, I have a little bit of a concern because uh, the communication um, needs to be a little bit stronger, I would say, between OrthoFi and the practice when a patient gets to an uncollectible standpoint. So I've, I've seen a couple little issues with that, that that probably needs to be cleaned up a little bit. They definitely can help with automated, both of them help with automated payments. Both of them take the relationship building out of the relationship you have with that patient. So from a marketing standpoint, you know, I would just say to watch it a little, to watch that a little bit. I don't know that I would say much else in terms of, you know, that's what's happening with those two particular companies. In terms of, you know, you asked the question about how do you know when they're, when you need a consultant coming in there? You know, it's, it's different. I mentioned to you earlier, we don't do a lot of on, we do on-site consulting, but we actually do a lot of remote consulting with offices because we have found that there's certain pockets of things that need to be addressed in an office. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to get on an airplane and go there. So, you know, I have doctors calling for different reasons. Some just want to know, are we doing good or are we not doing good? You know, how, where are we? What needs to be fixed? So we'll remotely analyze some practices and then come up with a suggestion of, you know, here's how someone can work with you. It just depends on the consultant. It, you know, it really just depends. What, what, I, what I hear a little bit is, I, I think the ideal scenario is that you have great in-house systems with people that are trained to do this, that have a relationship in your practice and that know what they're doing and can manage this from, in your, I mean, that's kind of your ideal. Yes. And I'm going to say those people exist. Yes. So to those practices that think those people don't exist, 
they do exist. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Below that, I think, is you know, maybe hiring someone to do it either because, like I say, it maybe makes it a little bit less personal or because it's just expensive. But but if it's working, I think that's a good number two. Yes. And then the number three is like keeping it in house, but having it be a hot mess, right? Like, I mean, that's like the worst <laughs> Yeah. is like if, if, you, if, if you're doing it in house, but you are terrible, you yeah. know, maybe you should upgrade to number two. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, and I really think there's all kinds of levels there. Sure. Yeah. I like your three levels. And, you know, I'll tell you what, there's a guy out in California, his name's Bent Erickson. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you this little quick little tip. He's in human resources. And he had a great thing I heard from him a number of years ago was, if you have an employee in your office, and you're trying to determine whether or not they're competent, Three questions you want to ask yourself. First one is, do they have the correct attitude, yes or no? If they don't have the right attitude, you're probably sunk. You probably can't move on to question number two. But if they have the right attitude, move on to question number two. Question number two is, do they have the ability to do the job? If they have the ability to do the job, move on to question number three. If they don't have the ability to do the job, move them into a job they have the ability to do. Yeah. Now, question number three, because they have the attitude, they have ability, is do they have the training? So if they don't have the training, get them the training. So even those that are a hot mess, I need to take a look at those three questions, see if that person who's in there is capable of being trained, train her properly, she may be fine. Right. But if she's not trained or she, does, she has a bad attitude or she doesn't have the ability, then you might want to start looking at some other companies. Yeah. No, I, I like that. I think that's a great way of, uh, of, of thinking about things. We are flying through the time here, Jackie. We, we, you know, we had no problem uh, f- filling up a whole interview is uh, worth the material here. But I want to give you a chance. What did, what did we miss? Is there anything that you feel like doctors should be looking at or, or important things that uh, you know, people should be thinking about when they're you know, thinking about the financial systems in their practice. I'm going to mention one other one that's just going to floor you, credit balances. Okay. And I'll tell you why I'm going to mention credit balances. I am astounded at the dollar amount of credit balances that I see on books. For instance, I just looked at a practice in Louisiana the other day, $200,000 in credit balances. What? I'm not joking. I would lose my mind. Totally. I would too. Um, one in Missouri that was $125,000. Now, why am I mentioning it? Because if you're a young doctor and you just bought a practice, you better take a look at what's happening with credit balances because that liability is now yours. If you're about to buy a practice and you see a practice has a lot of credit balances, negotiate accordingly because those become yours. The patient overpaid or the insurance company overpaid, you have used that money and it's due back to them. Right. So this is money you technically owe other people. That's correct. I had a client in the Atlanta area who had $40,000 in accounts that needed to be written off the books. They were past the statute of limitations. You couldn't collect them. $40,000. And he had $40,000 in credit balances. They negate each other. I couldn't get the guy to take care of that money. I don't know why, but I needed to get rid of the write-offs and I needed to get rid of the credit balances. So I also had a client in Ohio who recently was audited by the state of Ohio because they had too many credit balances. They had about $125,000. Now I had told that office, 
do me a favor, start refunding $5,000 a month. So the dollar amount I say to refund is dependent upon the size of the practice. Refund 3,000, refund 5,000, but hit that number every month. They didn't do that. Now they were being audited by the state of Ohio because the state of Ohio didn't think that they had um, you know, told people that they had these credit balances, nor were they refunding them. So it seems like a funny topic to want to cover, but I'm astounded at the dollar amount of credit. But credit balances have to be maintained just like patient delinquency has to be maintained. And this is why I think having someone like yourself who has some experience with all of kind of where the, 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 the bodies are buried and the landmines are uh, is because people, like you said, don't know what they don't know, right? And, and right. if you don't know t- that your financial person should be running a credit balance report every month or at least every quarter, right? you can end up in this situation just completely unknowingly. You know, that's, yes. that's a report that, that, that's mandatory for us to run in our practice uh, every month because I don't, I don't like to see those either. And I, and I think there's other little things, like another thing that I'm always shocked to hear is doctors who reconcile their bank statement to their QuickBooks account, yes. but never reconcile their QuickBooks account to their practice management software. And there's a lot of people that do that. And, and I, I find that's another area where I'm like, no, no, you have to do this. You have to do it. And if you know, if you want to do it quarterly, or if you want to have a CPA do it quarterly, you know, it behooves you to do that to make sure that money's getting from your practice management system to your bank statement. You know, there was an embezzlement case we worked on one time where um, what was happening is a staff member was actually—I almost hate to say this—refunding her own credit card. You know, so she was just going through and putting money on her credit card every once in a while. So yeah, there's some things that you don't realize and you become complacent and you think your CPA is looking at that stuff. Your CPA is not looking at anything in your practice management system at all. Nope. Not at all. He's looking at your bank statement. That's it. So yes, that's a good point. It definitely needs to be bank, state, bank statement or QuickBooks to practice management system, not to each other. And the other thing that I'll say as a follow-up to that with these automatic payments, I'm a little bit surprised at how many of them fail and there's not been a reconciliation between that third-party payer and the practice management system. So they're getting posted to the practice management system and then when you go back and you take a look at that third-party payer, it didn't clear. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah, so (laughs) that happens quite frequently, you know, when it's not being automatically posted. So that's another thing that should be looked at. So to anyone who's listening who has no idea what we're talking about, um, you know, hopefully your financial uh, person does, or hopefully you can uh, give someone like Jackie a call to get some help with some of these things because these are important. I mean, we, we spend our time in the mouth working on patients, uh, developing relationships, going out into the community, building practices, and, and that's all great. But uh, if, if, if you don't have some of these uh, logistics and this infrastructure in place, you're going to run into some big headaches later on. And, and it's an issue that either you can deal with now when it's manageable or you can deal with later when it's kind of a disaster. And uh, I think that the listeners of this podcast are going to want to get ahead of it. They're, they're proactive type people that they're going to be on top of it. So, Jackie, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and for sharing uh, some of this with us. I've, I've learned a lot just by speaking with you. Uh, if people want to get a hold of you, if they've got more questions for you, if they're interested in, in hiring you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? You can go to the website, J.M. Shoemaker, and it's just like it sounds, S-H-O-E-M-A-K-E-R.com, or you can call the office, 772-770-2000. 
Awesome. Well, thanks again so much. I look forward to uh, seeing you again soon. Have a great night. Thank you, Lance. Thanks to the sponsor of today's episode, Smart Practice. Are your patients struggling to remove clear braces, aligners, and retainers? The Smart Remover from Smart Practice can help you make it easier for patients to stay compliant with their treatments while keeping your practice information top of mind every day. The Smart Remover gives you an efficient way to promote your practice and end patients' struggle with removing their clear braces, aligners, and retainers all in one product. The Smart Remover comes with free personalization so you can display your contact information and it fits in most retainer cases. To save 20% on your order, just call 1-800-522-0800 or visit smartpractice.com slash ortho and use the code ELEVATE. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. 